All right, now we got a good recording going. So we're going to work on attachment theory again. I think this will help you understand people, not just the uh, kids that we're going to spend a lot of focus on today, but also other adults that you might be dealing with. If you're having trouble using the conflict resolution work that we did before, um, if you're wondering why am I not, why am I having trouble communicating with somebody, this is a good framework to put it around. It might help you understand other people better. I think that understanding attachment theory helps you understand it. So make sure you have something to write on so you can take some notes. Please ask me questions later. Love for you guys also to send me a testimonial. Um, I'm going to just click this up here really quickly because you guys all know me, some stuff about me, but you guys all know all this stuff. All right. So we're going to talk about understanding attachment theory. Oop. Okay. My clicks didn't work here too good. Um, so what attachment means, why do we care? That's gonna be really important. Um, how it develops at a young age, uh, we'll talk about the development of it. I'm gonna show you a quick video of it and the categories of attachment. There's four kinds of attachment. One is secure. So secure attachment, we're gonna spend a lot of time on that because it's important for you to understand how, uh, what the, I wouldn't say ideal attachment is, but about 50% of people have really good attachment um, styles. And that be, could be, because of their parents or it could be because of how they grew up. But we're gonna talk about what that is so that you can understand when people are not uh, attached very well. It, it isn't just those kids that, that uh, Mr. Fleas talked about that are having attachment problems. It really applies to about 50% of the population that have got some other attachment issues. And it may explain why people might need a little bit more attention, might need, might, might sound like they may, uh, might be asking for more attention or might be more quiet. This, uh, this has a, a relationship to all those things. Um, and then how to measure attachment. I'm gonna give you a website. You can measure your own attachment style and how it matters. So we're gonna working with kids and adults. Okay, so why is attachment necessary? We need it because it's designed for survival. So it's designed for um, it, when, we, when we're born, as an infant, we need attachment. We need to be able to have parents attached to us and kids attached to parents. You guys have probably heard all this before because we need it for food and shelter. If we didn't have this as humans, and there's other animals that don't have attachment needs, um, but most mammals do. Um, some animals, kid comes out, they swim away or they fly away or they walk away, they're done. Um, as humans, we have to have a lot of interaction because we need this for survival. So it applies after infant age too. We, as children, we need to be able to feel comfortable with ourselves. It, it develops really an idea of how they're gonna understand that the world's gonna be safe. And this is important. Your, your, your kid may be safe or the child that we work with might feel like they're safe. Sure, they're not gonna get run over by a truck because the, the parent will keep them from getting run over by a truck. But what the other piece is, is they need to feel that the world is a place where they can ask for help. The world's a place that if they're not getting, um, if they're not getting taken care of all the time, that that's gonna be okay and they can develop some independence. So if they don't have the right level of attachment, this balance of attachment that we end up calling secure, that's when they have one of these other types of problems. And you, I think it'll make more sense as we get together. And as an adult, 
you'll see a lot of people. And again, about 50% of the population, it's important for relationship development. If you're in a group and you don't have good attachment, you don't have good bonding. This is why football teams or other teams do bonding activities. Um, it's for relationship development so that people feel like they can trust the other person. So attachment is about trust, feeling like they're going to be there. If they leave, they're going to be able to come back. Very similar to when you're an infant. Uh, you guys have heard of infants feeling, um, we'll, we'll give you a name for this a little later, but infants feeling like if the parent leaves, they, they're at some point in their development, they don't know if they're going to come back or, back or not. And that's called relational con constancy. Okay, so let me give you some ideas of how uh, this is going to be a pretty serious video I'm going to show you about how attachment can have negative effects. Hopefully this got enabled here. All right. So this is how attachment issues can affect addiction. Maybe a different uh, framework for addiction for you guys. I really like this video. So here you go. Um, give me a thumbs up too if you guys have uh, can hear this all right. So an addiction is a complex psychological, physiological process, but which manifests in any behavior, any behavior that a person enjoys, that a person enjoys, finds relief in, and therefore craves in the short term, but suffers negative consequences in the long term and doesn't give up despite the negative consequences. So craving pleasure, relief in the short term, negative consequences in the long term, inability to give it up. Now, notice I has said nothing about substances. I said any behavior. So it could be related to cocaine, crystal meth, heroin, fentanyl, marijuana, nicotine, alcohol, whatever. Could also be sex, gambling, internet, relationships, shopping, eating, work, extreme sports, working out, um, pornography, any number of uh, human activities. So I said any behavior. Now, the official definition of addiction, according to the American um, Society for Addiction Medicine, is that this is primary a brain, it's a primary brain disorder. It arises in the brain, largely due to genetic reasons. This is how they see it. And I say that's just not true. Uh, the other popular idea with addiction is that it's a choice that somebody makes, that people choose to be addicted, which is what the legal system is based on. Because if people are not choosing, what are we punishing them for? And, and uh, although I think the medical definition is closer to the truth, I don't see it as a genetic, it's a genetic disorder and I don't see it as a primary brain disorder. So let me perhaps show you why, if that's okay. A human being has two fundamental needs apart from the physical needs in infancy, in childhood. One is for attachment. <clears throat> now attachment is the closeness and proximity with another human being for the sake of being looked after or for the sake of looking after the other. Now, human beings as mammals and even birds are creatures of attachment. We have to connect and attach because otherwise we don't survive. If there's nobody that's motivated to take care of us, to attach to us that way, and we're not motivated to attach to others, we just can't survive. One of the interesting things is, is that the endorphins, which um, are the body's internal opiate make, uh, chemicals, which heroin and all the other opiates resemble, they help to facilitate attachment. So if you take infant mice and you knock out their endorphin receptors so they don't have 
endorphin opiate activity in their brain, they won't cry for help when separated from their mothers, which would mean that they would die in the wild. And which goes back to what happens in early in childhood when there's stress and trauma, these, uh, these endorphin systems don't develop. And then when people do heroin, it feels like a warm, soft hug to them. They feel love and connection for the first time. That's why it's so powerful. But so we have this need for attachment, without which obviously the human infant, who's the most helpless, the most dependent, the least mature of any creature in the universe at birth, uh, cannot survive without the attachment. And that attachment relationship, given that we have the longest period of development of any creature, you know, well into adolescence and, and beyond, attachment is not a negotiable need. But we have another need, which is authenticity. Now, authenticity, out of the self, means being connected to ourselves, just knowing what we feel and being able to act on it. So that means our gut feelings. So let's look at how human beings evolved. For hundreds of thousands of years, and for a hundred thousand years or so of this species existing on Earth, how did we live? We didn't live in cities and houses and so on. We lived there out there in the wild until very recently in human um, existence. Now, just how long do you survive in the wild if you're not connected to your gut feelings? Not very long. If you start using your intellect instead of your gut feelings, you just don't survive. So that's a powerful survival need as well. So attachment is a survival need. Authenticity is a survival need. But what happens if your authenticity threatens your attachment relationships? For example, as a two-year-old, you get angry because you didn't get that cookie before dinner. But your parents can't handle anger because they grew up in homes when there was rage and, and they're terrified at the very expression of anger. So they give you the message that good little kids don't get angry. The message you receive is not that good little kids don't get angry, but that angry little kids don't get loved. Because your parents are now sullen, they won't look at you, they talk to you in a harsh way, you're not getting loved. Not experiencing love at that moment. Now, but you've got to stay attached. Guess what you're going to suppress? The authenticity every time. And this is how we lose connection to ourselves and to our gut feelings. So that, strangely enough, that very dynamic, which is essential for human survival in a natural setting, not becomes a threat to our survival in this in this more modern setting where to stay authentic is to threaten attachment and so we give up our authenticity and then we wonder who the hell we are and whose life is this and who's experiencing all this and this life doesn't you know and who am i really and so that's where the reconnection has to happen that's where the healing happens is with that reconnection but it's because of that conflict the tragic conflict in childhood between authenticity and attachment that most of us face, that we lose ourselves and lose connection to our gut feelings. Now, this leads to the, uh, the question of trauma, because it's one thing to recognize that all this originates in childhood pain. It's quite another to transform that pain. And for that, we have to understand what trauma is. So people often think that trauma is what happens to you. So trauma is a divorce, when you were small and your parents fighting, trauma is your mother's depression, trauma is your father's alcoholism, trauma is your parents' argumentation, trauma is physical or sexual abuse or some loss. Those aren't the traumas. Those are traumatic. But the trauma is not what happens to you. The trauma is what happens inside you. And as a result of these traumatic events, what happens inside you is you get, you get disconnected from your emotions and you disconnect it from your body, 
and you have difficulty being in the present moment and you develop a negative view of your world and a negative view of yourself and a defensive view of other people. And these perspectives keep showing up in your life in the present. So in other words, the addiction is not the primary problem. It's an attempt to solve a problem. And then the real question is, how did the problem arise? In other words, this is where my theory is that it's always rooted in childhood trauma and that the addiction is an attempt to deal with the effects of childhood trauma, which it does temporarily, while it creates even more problems in the long term. And so the issue is not just to recognize what happened 10, 15, 30, however many years ago, but to actually recognize the manifestations in the present moment and to transcend them. And how do you do that? By reconnecting with yourself, by restoring the connection with your body primarily, and with your emotions that you lost. And once you do, when you found these things again, then you have what we call recovery. Because what does it mean to recover something? It means to find it again. So what does it that people find when they recover? They find themselves. And the loss of self is the essence of trauma. So the real purpose of, uh, of, of addiction treatment, mental health treatment, any kind of healing is reconnection. Okay, so this is the, I showed you that video, not because we're focusing on addiction today, is because, um, is because we're talking about the, the different types or how attachment affects somebody. And you saw three things on there that I want you to focus on. The um, attachment and how that can be, uh, that can be things that aren't necessarily major trauma. Attachment issues aren't as as Mr. Flees talked about. Um, you know, if somebody's adopted and there was a, a really big problem because of, you know that caused the adoption, like for, for example, the child was abandoned or the child was uh, not cared for, and then they got adopted and that caused trauma. That could be an attachment problem later. Of course, that's that could be a big issue, but it also could be the example of that mom asking her kid for uh, for cookies or the, I'm sorry, the kid asking the mom for cookies. So if the kid's asking the mom for cookies and she maybe doesn't even have that rage problem that, uh, that Gabor Mate, if you ever want to look him up, that's his name, uh, talked about, <clears throat> she could just be, you know, properly disciplining the kid or disciplining the kid the way she learned from her parents. So she does that enough and frequently enough, and we'll see different ways. That's just to an extreme level. It may not be you know, massive, that the kid interprets that incorrectly and they start developing some of these attachment issues. So this doesn't have to be severe and it doesn't have to turn into addiction like uh, like the video talked about, but we'll talk about what's the difference between secure and insecure attachment and how these kind of things can develop. And they don't have to be as severe as what you just saw in the video. But I think number one, you got to see what can create these attachment problems. Number two, it doesn't have to be as severe as what leads to addiction, but also what the consequences of very severe attachment issues can be. It can be some of these other things. And you got the side benefit of understanding if uh, you ever do see somebody in addiction issues, that's not our topic for today, but you may have a different perspective on how to maybe uh, suggest their treatment. Um, that's another topic. So we're going to talk about um, the early development a little bit so that you can understand how it applies to current 
current situations. So attachment theory started with these guys. You gotta write this down so you just remember it in your head. If you ever work with schools for you know, all of our martial arts guys here, of course, if you're working with schools, you wanna be able to talk about this in, a, in, a, in an educated way um, and uh, have a little bit of that uh, you know, data background from you. And they did something called a strange situation experiment. So John Bowlby was the originator of attachment theory. Mary Ainsworth was one of his colleagues. And what she did was she was famous for this, I think it was in 70, 76 or 78. Um, and what they did was they take kids and parents and put them in a room with toys. And then they removed the parent and they observed what happened to the kid. They didn't do anything mean to the kid. They just said, what well, you know, observe what would happen to the kid. Some kids would kind of be upset that the parent left, but then play with toys. And when the parent came back, they'd be happy that the, you know, they'd be, you know, kind of going over there and crying and Hey, where were you mom and dad? But then they'd be soothable. They'd be, they'd be okay. And be able to be soothed. Those were the secure kids. Some of the kids though, Mom and mom and kid comes into the room and different things happen. And we'll talk about the different things that, that would happen. But this was all based on experiments with kids. Um, might not pass a review board today, but this is what happened back in the in the day. So this is the, the situation, the strange situation experiment. And there were three different types of um, uh, three different types of attachment identified here. One was secure, the one I just mentioned. One was anxious. So these kids, when the parent would leave, the kid would be really, really uh, worried about where the parent was a lot longer. And when the parent came back, they would be worried where the parent was, of course. But even when the parent was in the room and the parent wasn't leaving, the kid would be anxious about where the parent was. There'd be, they'd always be worried about where the parent was. The avoidant kid, parent would leave, Kid would be a little bit worried about what would happen, but pretty much they'd play on their own. And this was an interesting one because you might think, well, this kid was really self, um, could manage himself really well. You might see this with a kid with autism where they can be really by themselves forever and you don't have to worry about them. And you think, wow, I got a great kid because I don't have to worry about this kid. Well, the problem is the kid, when the parent left, their heart rate and their stress level was just as high as all the other kids. So it wasn't that they weren't stressed and afraid. It was they were just as afraid, but what they learned to do was suppress all their expression of feelings. So this was a really serious one as well. So these were three that they identified. And here's kind of how it all works. They, all of these attachment responses are results of threats. So the first thing that this, all of this, everything here is designed to be um, based on result of a threat. So whenever there's a threat, a child, when they're young, has some sort of attachment-seeking behavior. Something's wrong. I want to have some help. I want to get my mom or dad. I want to have whoever's my caregiver. And this is how secure or insecure attachment over time can get developed. If the attachment figures available, avail sorry about, I should speak English. If the attachment figure figure is available, so they're going to be there. And this doesn't mean that they're always hovering over the parent, that they're doing, they're kind of normally available, that they're available when the kid needs them. They don't have to be uh, like a helicopter parent. If they're available, then the kid is, you know, soothed and everything's fine. The kid will resume normal playing activities. This is secure. Here's the other two cases, though. If they're not available, 
then obviously the kid has increased distress. And this could be, doesn't mean that they're always going to have attachment issues, but if you know, you're a parent, your kid is um, doing something and you have to step out for a minute or you're busy doing something and the kid realizes you're gone or the kid, maybe the kid um, falls down and starts bleeding. The kid's going to be upset. Right. And if he can't find you or she can't find you, then they're going to be more upset, more upset. That would be just normal, right? That'd be a normal situation. The issue is, is when this happens a lot. So if the parent isn't very close, there's two different cases. Sometimes the parent's available, okay? And sometimes they're not. If the parent's not available, in other words, they're a neglectful parent or they're a critical parent, or maybe they're just not there much, then the child needs to have a deactivating strategy. And that minimizes so that what they need to do is they realize to survive, they need to minimize how many cues are in threat. When there's a threat, they need to minimize the attachment cues. In other words, they pretty much know crying's not going to do them any good. Uh, calling for mom's not going to do them any good. Calling for dad's not going to do any good. They have to have a deactivating strategy. So remember that word deactivating. If Proximity seeking, so in other words, they can find their parent is an option, then they have a hyperactivating strategy. So again, the parent wasn't, or the caregiver, it doesn't mean a parent necessarily, wasn't available and they couldn't find them. They weren't, they weren't physically there, they were neglectful, um, uh, they were unreliable or unpredictable, those kind of situations. Then they have to have a hyperactivating strategy. So what their strategy is, is going to be increase the number of cues. They're going to call for mom. They're going to cry more. They're going to knock on the slam on the door. They're going to do more things to try to get the, the caregiver to respond. Okay. And so this is just going to keep amplifying, amplifying in a, um, and, and the threat. Remember, if in this situation, the threat hasn't been dealt with. In this case, the threat's dealt with because... They felt relief. Everything's fine. In these other cases, they don't feel relief. So they're going to keep feeling the threat. And then they're going to keep doing this. They're going to keep feeling the threat. And this is going to keep escalating until they learn a strategy. In the one case, if they can't get the parent's attention or the parent isn't there or the caregiver isn't there, they're going to minimize their attachment cues, deactivating strategy. If they're going to if the parent's available, but not handling things very well. So let me give you some examples. I wrote some down. Activating hyper, they might go down this path. Maybe if the parent's unreliable, unpredictable, or intrusive. Um, punishing or criticizing their child uh, if they're in, for their independence or curiosity. That might be there. They're available, but every time you get um, you you talk to the parent, they're critical. Um, conveying messages the child is not enough or is incapable or stupid or failing. Um, helicopter style of parenting. So see how that's interestingly backfiring. Um, a helicopter style of parenting, parent isn't really responsive, kids insecure, and it's increasing the amount of, of uh, hyperactivating strategy, increasing the amount of things the kids does, and then it makes the parent even more of a helicopter parent. Um, let's see. And the other thing is if there's an experience of abuse or traumas that can also add a hyperactivating strategy, you know, and think about a battered, uh, battered spouse syndrome where the person is, um, in a locked in a relationship. In that case, they could leave 
even though that's a problem as well. But in a child's case, they're stuck. I mean, they pretty much can't leave unless it's a major issue. So imagine a child that feels a, that is being abused, is literally being abused, and they can't, they can't do anything about it. Well, what do they have to do? Well, it, in the battered spouse case, you end up in the situation where they get abused, but then they have to keep coming back to try to get more attention or get more whatever from the, from the other person. Okay. Now they can go this way if the person is neglectful. This would be neglectful, um, being emotionally cold or rejecting. Maybe the parent doesn't know how to handle it, uh, how to handle a child. Um, if, the, if the parent is hostile or angry, every time the kid comes to them and says, I'm drawing so many lines here. Uh, if the, every time the child comes to them, they are um, uh, yelling at them. You know, every time they make a mistake, they get yelled at. If they ever want some attention, they say, handle it on your own. So there's this, there's this balance between a stable, managed, really good, uh, responsive parent that's managing things well and, and having a balance versus one that's overly critical or overly neglect, neglectful. Any questions about this graph? This would be a good one to screenshot. Um, yes, sir. Um, these, things, these things don't necessarily just apply to children, right? I, that's a great, great point. I'm really glad you brought that up. This is how a, an attachment style develops. And typically, it's developed in childhood. So this is uh, where you learn to have a certain attachment style. However, we're going to talk about how this applies in adulthood. And when you learn this attachment style in adulthood, then you may respond with a hyperactivating strategy or deactivating strategy um, or, or a mixed version of that. We'll talk about the mixed version of that um, with the other people around you, with people you work with, with your, with your spouses. You might have that with a parent that comes in and they're all mad and they're all upset. Well, why are they all mad and they're all upset? One parent gets all mad and all upset about something. One other parent doesn't say anything. Well, guess what? They might be severe on one end or the other extreme of that attachment style where they're deactivating or hyperactivating. And, you know, it's hard to get sometimes you meet other adults and it's hard to get them to talk about things. Well, that might be a deactivating strategy. Sometimes, you know, they complain about everything or they notice everything or they're very clingy. That's a hyperactivating strategy. So it absolutely, absolutely applies to adults. Now, can it be created if somebody has a secure attachment style as a child? Um, generally they maintain that later. So generally, uh, if they have uh, a secure attachment at a young age and into uh, teenager years, they maintain that through their life, which is, which is great. If they don't, now the good news is this isn't fixed. You can, you can change this. People can develop and, and build a more secure attachment base. And we'll talk about how to do that. Great question though. Yeah, we're not just talking about kids here. So here's some current ideas of attachment styles. So what you want to think about is low anxiety to high anxiety. So low anxiety means um, as a, let's think about kids for a second, back to kids. If they're um, in an environment where they have a lot of anxiety, uh, then that's high anxiety. High anxiety would be um, there's a lot of stress in their, in their world. So they have a lot of stress. Um, 
and there's a there's some of the things that we talked about earlier neglectful things going on and that type of thing low avoidance and high avoidance means i'm building the strategy that they're building a strategy either to deactivate being low avoidance or i mean high avoidance deactivating is high avoidance because i'm going to decide hey look i really can't get anything for mom or dad i'm not going to try because that's just survival if i try to go get love and caring for mom and dad they're going to blow me off that's going to make me feel worse. So I'm going to be high avoidance. If I, I have low avoidance, if when I go try to get responses from mom and dad, I'm getting responses, that might be low avoidance, even if it's not positive. So let's go through the four different ones. Of course, we know one of them is secure. If when I get try to get care and love and everything, and again, you're right about that, adults too, then I'm going to feel more secure. Even if you had, even if for one of us, if we had a, in a little bit of an insecurity, if when you go get um, caring and you get it, or when you go ask for it and you get it, then you're going to feel more secure. Everybody's that way, whether you're secure or not, or anything else, right? If you go try to get help and you get it, it makes you feel better. It's normal. Okay. So that's about 50% of people. Now the preoccupied, which is the adult version or anxious, which is the kid's version we talked about is they have low avoidance. They want to get they, they still have got a strategy to, we call that hyperactive, they hyperactivating, not hyperactive like ADHD, but they want to get help. They, they have low avoidance, but they're also, um, they also are not getting it very well. They're not getting help very consistently. Okay. Dismissive avoidant means they have high avoidance. So we kind of covered that. And then disorganized is a mix of those two. That's about 5% of the population. So sometimes this is, this has got a lot of, it's very chaotic. Sometimes they're preoccupied, sometimes they're dismissive. Um, and some of these can turn into more severe personality disorders when they've got some of these issues. Okay. So secure attachment. I'm going to go through this quick, just because I want to stay on track here. We got 25 minutes. Secure attachment is a, a child. Again, environment. If the, if the family is, um, is uh, supportive and their caregivers accessible. I'm doing a really quick summary of this for you guys, but you get the idea. I want to emphasize that doesn't this doesn't mean mom's doing everything and dad's doing everything for the kid. That's not what this means. This means that it's a balanced. They're supportive. They're also letting them do stuff. They're they're not hovering over them. It's a balance between supportive caring. Uh, they they still are, show solid discipline. I always recommend the book, One, Two, Three Magic, perfect book to represent building a secure attachment with the child. That's what we recommend in the martial arts schools. Um, that's what we recommend when you're dealing with kids, also around adult environment. So this is the developmental environment that a secure attachment would have. So when the kid reaches out, they, um, for needs, they have a response built into their emotional nervous system that says everything's okay. It means everything's going to be okay. Or if it's not okay, I don't have to wait forever for it to be okay. I won't fall on my head, be bleeding, and I won't get help. That would be an extreme example. So the result would be, you know, just like in that strange situation example, these are some things that they learn. They become mainly that they become more resilient, resistant to trauma. These are going to be very solid and developed. And again, about 50% of people develop this way. Um, 
mainly think about it as they develop a sense of safety and trust. They trust mom and dad are going to be there. They develop trust and and cooperation as an adult. The world's a friendly place. So think about it that way. I'll try to give you one line for each of these. Um, They can ask for what they want. I feel comfortable asking for what I want. And if I don't get it, the world's not going to explode. I'm not going to throw a tantrum. Insecure kids would throw a tantrum. Please stop me. Um, for any of these uh, to slow you down. So Bowlby, that guy that I mentioned that thought of this, he has four features of attachment. Two of these are really important. We're going to talk about it. Um, Safe haven and secure base. So we'll go into a little more detail about these later, but, um, you know, obviously proximity, there's, there's good proximity maintenance, not too close, not too far away. Um, If there, there's a management of separation distress when the kid's far away, they're, you know, you, you've managed that. If the kids, um, you know, if the kid, if parent leaves the room, the kid's going to be okay. Um, and that the safe haven and secure base means these two things. It's probably good to write down safe haven means that if I have problems, I can, I, if you have problems, you can come back. You can, you can be safe. If you have problems, you can come back to be safe. This one means it. I'm. It's okay to. I would think about this as okay to explore. So this is the big definition and the big crux of when you think people are doing a good job as parents. And by the way, as you're running your school or in your business, this is what we support as well, right? We want to have them. Something goes wrong, we help them, but also we want to push them so that they can have a secure base so that everything's going to be okay. And you can go do stuff on your own. There's a base for that. There's a, there's a launching point for things. So those two things, secure, safe haven and secure base are really important. And by the way, we just got asked about adults in adult relationships. That's important. Making sure that like for one-on-one relationships, the other person is, Hey, something goes wrong. I'm there for you. Also, I want to do something cool and extreme. I'm there for you too. I may want to do it with you. I may not, but I'm a good base for you to explore and do other things with. So they're not trying to hold you into to themselves. Does that make sense? Secure base and safe haven are two characteristics of secure attachment. I know I'm going fast. Okay. So secure attachment as an adult, what does this look like? So we feel confident. If we, if we have a secure, uh, healthy sense of self. And by the way, all the stuff I'll show you about secure and insecure attachment, we're all going to feel insecure at some times. You're all going to feel that way sometimes. I mean, you guys own businesses, so you're bound to go, oh, crap, things are going this way. And sometimes things are going great. So, you know, don't get too uh, overly diagnosing. You want you to be able to help other people with this stuff. Um, yeah, positive expectations. So you you generally think that people are going to do the right thing. Um, negative experiences are going to be things you you get ideas from and you learn from, and it's not because the world's out for you and you have a lot of problems. And just like the kids, feeling comfortable asking for stuff, and they have a foundation for self esteem and building confidence. So you'd see adults, you know, if you see 20 year olds and they have secure attachment, they're probably trying to do new things. They're trying to meet other people. Uh, even if they're introverts, they would be okay meeting other people. It doesn't mean introverted or extroverted, it just means they have secure attachment. So here's some statements. I'm just going to go quickly through these and flip through them. Um, 
some ideas. You guys could screenshot this if you wanted. Um, and they're comfortable being around others. Uh, during conflict, they can handle the conflict. They can manage doing the conflict resolution stuff we talked about last time. Okay, independent versus codependent. I wanted to talk about this a little bit. So you hear a lot of people talk about codependent. Um, the idea, there's an idea called um, uh, differentiation of self. And this is really important working with kids too, versus fusion. So let me tell you what fusion is. Fusion is I'm a mom and every time my kid uh, does something wrong or every time something happens, I've got to be on right on it. So like a helicopter parent, right? That's fusion. If they're upset, I'm upset. If I'm upset, they're upset, in fact. So that's a, and you hear that is the word codependent. The, the, the mom or the dad, it, problems happening in their life, they kind of make the kid upset. That's codependent. So sometimes when we talk about secure attachment, because these people have really good relationships, they're very interdependent. They ask people for stuff. They work really well with people. They do a lot of stuff. In fact, they expect people to help them. They expect, have a lot of expectations of people. You think, well, those guys are, code that sounds like codependent, but it's not. Codependent would mean my emotions are tied into them and their emotions are tied into me in, a, in an unhealthy way. That's called fusion. Differentiation of self is I may do the exact same things, but um, without a pen working, uh, but I but I know who I am. And if they don't do what I want, it's going to be OK and I can manage it. So my results are not dependent on whether or not they're happy with me or they have good emotions or bad emotions. So interdependent versus codependent. When we talk about these things, that'll help make sure you understand the difference of it. All right, hopefully that makes some sense. Uh, I wanted to go through that really fast. All right, so, uh, so these are all the attachment styles that we, we're gonna go through all these really quick so that you understand them. Guys, I'm going real fast, so slow me down if I need to. Um, important, I'm not blaming parents for any of this. A lot of times like that girl with the cookie jar, I always think of that example. In this case, he gave the example, she's a, they're a rageaholics or they grew up that way. Um, it could just be a misunderstanding and the mom just, you know, kind of does no, you can't have a cookie. And she says that enough. And the kid just feels unloved. That starts developing some problems. That doesn't mean you're doing a bad job. If you tell your kids, you can't have a cookie or you tell them the, the student that you have that you can't, they can't do something. Um, I don't want anybody to stress about that, but it doesn't mean that the parents did a bad job. Um, a lot of it's about the kid's interpretation of what they saw and not necessarily about the truth is. It doesn't mean the parents did a good job either, by the way. Um, they, they, you know, they do whatever they can. All of us do. Me too. You know, I have had a lot of experience with kids and I make plenty of mistakes with mine. Um, so what our job is when we're working with kids is to guide parents. We can't tell them what to do. Okay. We can't tell them what to do, but we can also help with this attachment process by doing the things that you you've heard about so far about being about security so improving the security with the um with the um uh with the parent and kid relationships and we can do those same things with the the kids that we work with and in your adult relationships you can do those same things be a safe haven in a secure base for the other people in your life 
they're going to feel more connected and, and more secure, whether or not their attachment style is different. They could be insecure, they could be anxious, they could be deactivating, they could be hyperactivating, they could be however they want. But if you're a secure base and a safe haven, then, and we want to be that way for students, this gives you a reason why that'll start building them. So the kid is hiding behind the mom, that's what we want to be. The kid that's got, as uh, Mr. Fleas mentioned a minute ago, had the diagnosed attachment disorder, that's what we want to work on being. It'll just be harder for that kid because he's got a more severe issue. Um, and again, what happened with the parents are in the, in the past. Important to know, these things can change. So you can develop, and a lot of times they're different for different situations. Somebody may, may have more, in, more insecure attachment style for, uh, with their partners than they would with their work colleagues, or they may have it more with their kids and with their, or with their parents. Last thing is, it's not an excuse for bad behavior. Sometimes people will say, and I heard this uh, in one seminar we did, well, my, you know, somebody said, well, I, I have autism, so I can be act this way. This was in the last uh, workshop that somebody said, well, this, that's because of my autism. The, it, they're not here in this, in this workshop today. Um, yeah, so what? I mean, you still got to act right. So somebody said, well, yeah, that's because I have a, a whatever attachment style, a, a, a preoccupied attachment style doesn't mean you can act like a jerk. So it's not an excuse for bad behavior. We need to make sure that we uh, expect good behavior from people. Okay, so real quick, the general idea of when attachment needs are not met, this is how people will act. They don't think the world's safe. That's the biggest thing. Um, and for kids, write this word down because it's good to use if you're working with schools. Relational object constancy. I know that I, I try to give you a few of the tidbit, the buzzwords there. So relational object constancy means if my parent leaves, I think that they still exist or not. Literally, little kids, little like infants, if the parent leaves, they'll cry and they do research on this at younger ages and they think the parent, the assumption is the parent is gone forever. They don't exist. So relational object constancy can get spread out over a longer period of time into an unhealthy, unhealthy space. So with adults, they'll think that they'll have trouble if they don't have this developed well, they'll have lots of trouble with disappointments and, and problems and uncertainties and they won't be able to have good conflict resolution. And they usually have a relationship difficulties with relationship uh, satisfaction. So here's some issues when attachment needs aren't met. These are really quick version of it. So we're going to talk about the dismissive and avoidant uh, group, which is about 25%. And we'll go through these guys. Their early environment, um, again, generally their attachment figure, remember in that chart, they weren't responsive and they couldn't get them to pay attention to them. So they needed to deactivate, minimize how much they asked for attachment. And so for kids, a lot of times these guys may not look like they need help. They're just happy. They seem like they're happy and fine going off and doing their own thing. But remember in the study, they've got stress and their heart rate goes up and they've inhibited what their needs are because they don't want to get rejected. So they're wanting help and they're wanting love and they're wanting to care. And adults do exactly the same thing. So the idea of one quote is they subsist on emotional breadcrumbs. Okay, so that's kids. How do adults look? They generally will not want people to get too close. 
they they'll act like, Hey, I don't need anybody. I'm, I'm super independent. Nobody needs to, nobody needs to take care of me. What they really want is to make sure that other people, they don't become dependent or have any dependencies, interdependencies with other people. A lot of times they'll look like they have high esteem, self-esteem, but it'll be the kind of person will say, well, you know, I, I know a couple of these examples. Some of our ATA guys could, could, would remember some of the people I'm talking about, but, uh, but say, well, I, I, I am the most humble person, you know, or I'm whatever I'm, so I'm more of this than everybody else. Uh, we, we can remember some politicians that act that way. Um, but they present as high self-esteem, but they're saying that other people aren't as good as them as them in, in some areas. So that would be uh, a reason why they might, that's how they have to have self-esteem because it's related to other people. All of these insecure uh, types are going to have lower levels of trust with other people. And this is at work and everywhere else. Stop me for any questions. I know we're going fast. Preoccupied and anxious, about 20%. So a little less percentage than the dismissive. Remember, these guys were similar, but they could get some attention from the parent. So for them, because they can get some attention to the parent, they need to get more, they need to get more active. They need to do more stuff to increase their attachment cues. So the parents in this case, they could have been loving, but codependent with the child. So these are just some examples. They may have discouraged autonomy like the helicopter parents. So what the kids look like, these could be ADHD kids. So the speculation is in the attachment theory world that a lot of ADHD is really attachment issues at young ages. And so they needed, they just have this, this idea that they have to get attention from their caregiver. And so they're trying to get attention from everybody because that's the program that they built that that's the only way I can get, get, um, uh, get uh, some response. It doesn't have to be act hyperactive though. It could just be nervous all the time. I'm always concerned about what you think. I'm concerned about what other people think about me. I'm always calculating about what's happening in the environment around me. Sounds pretty stressful, right? Because they've enhanced, they've really heightened their senses about what's going on with other people. Now, how do adults look? They're going to be always focused on the status of the relationship. Um, if there's any any mistake another person makes, so these would be somebody. This would be somebody who says, "Well, hey, you didn't, you didn't, um, you know, you opened the door for me before, but you didn't open the door this time. What's wrong?" You know, and they get really upset about that. That would be uh, something we see with borderline personality disorder if it's very extreme. But even at low levels, they really notice when something's wrong and it doesn't have to be for control of the relationship. It's just because they're very sensitive to things. And they often, you'll see some people like this, master Samward. I know we know somebody like this who um, they, somebody who dates one person and they're this way and they date another person and they're this way and they date another person and they're this way. You guys ever know anybody like that? You know, they, if they date somebody, they're, they're in that, they're that they, one, one day they liked, you know, Comic-Con and the next day they liked sports and the next day they liked, I don't know what else, uh, sailing, if that's the person they were with, it would just, you know, so that would be over adapt to preserve the connection. They're really worried about abandonment and also same thing that the result of this ends up being really similar, that they have lower levels of trust, again, not just in one-on-one -on -one relationships, but with other people. 
All right, fearful and disorganized. So their early environment could have been really confusing. So the attachment figure sometimes was there, sometimes wasn't. Um, and there often this was because the attachment figure uh, was um, just never around or might've been around sometimes, may have been really inconsistent about how they responded to them. Sometimes they were caring, sometimes they weren't. Could have been the attachment figure. Uh, the parent was, uh, was a, a drug user. That happens sometimes and they get in, uh, this, is, this is common for this group uh, because then, you know, if they're on drugs, they're acting one way. If they're not on drugs, they're acting another way. Uh, and they have an inconsistent strategy for increase or decreasing their attachment cues. So very common associated with trauma. If, you're, if your caregiver, if they feel scary, even if they're not, maybe they're just a, maybe they're just a, you know, a really super busy, crazy with work, but maybe it just feels scary. And the way they associate with kids is really not very good. And they're not very, you know, nobody gets practice being a parent. So I'm trying to lessen the blame on the parent here. It may feel scary. So it may feel threatening to the kid. So that may come across like trauma. Remember the difference between traumatic, that's something that bad that happens and trauma, what happens inside of you. This could be something that, you know, happens inside of you, even if it's not one of the more major things that we think about. Okay. So how it looks at to be kids, different times, they may be one or the other. They're very erratic. Um, some of these behaviors, like the last one here to look at, run up to the parent, hit them, uh, rolling on the floor, lots of all kinds of different behaviors. Sometimes we end up wanting to medicate these kids and that, that can help actually, because now they're, it, it dampens the hyper hyperactivated strategy. Uh, some of the issues is it doesn't really solve the core problem. Adults, this one's a little bit uh, harder to uh, describe because it has the traits from both of the other attachment styles. Generally, there's some sort of trauma associated with it as a, as a young person. It's like they have um, two things going on at the same time, foot on the gas and on the brake. And as usual, lower level of trust. So those are the four, uh, those are the four attachment styles. We got secure, uh, preoccupied, dismissive, and uh, fearful, and any questions on those before I go on? Let me go back to the to the main chart on them. Any questions about these guys? I explained it so well. <laughs> Maybe we just don't know what we don't know. Well, no, it's a, uh, I think I gave you guys a lot of information. So here's a site I'd like you to, I'd like you to uh, write down, yourpersonality.net. Very easy to remember, yourpersonality.net. And you can, and you do a quick account. They don't send you any emails or anything. And you can do your own personality test and see what your attachment style is. And I highly recommend you do this. Um, also, it, for those of you guys married, which is most of you guys on the call, uh, do it with, have your spouse do it if you can, uh, if, if they're open to doing that, because then you can see where both of you come from and it can help you understand where each of you relate from one way or the other. It doesn't mean somebody's broken or messed up or anything. It's just how you, 
you know, kind of where you're, where you're at. So I recommend you do that, but it also helps you understand how you might react to somebody when they go, when they act one way, if you're a very secure person and somebody's um, got an anxious uh, personality style or attachment style, that's kind of weird, right? I mean, it feels weird to you. And so understanding from their point of view that doing this personality uh, net test can be helpful. Yes, sir. Then we can practice our um, conflict avoidance methods. Your conflict resolution methods. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, you'll do it from a point of view to understand where they're coming from. And then it, then the conflict resolution works better. You're right. Yes. Sir. Um, so attachment theory matters, I think, for kids and adults. We've got four attachment styles we've covered. Uh, and I think if you understand this better, it helps you with your communication with everybody. It can help you with communicating with clients, communicating with people you know, communicating with uh, negotiating with people. The idea is if somebody's not as secure, we can then be the safe haven and secure base for them. And then they hopefully will develop some more uh, secure attachments. If they do, that's great. If they don't, you know, that's not your problem. I mean, you, you, you have this information now, so you can help them a little bit. So, all right, go and use it. Any last questions? We finished just about exactly on time. I've got two minutes. Yes, sir. I don't have a question. I just want to add a couple of things. Um, to where attachment issues could um, come from, um, besides the adoption that um, Mrs. Fleece and I have studied about and experienced, but they also can uh, come from, uh, even when the children are in the womb, if there's negative environment outside of the womb and they hear that, they can, they can internalize that even before they're born um, in the infancy, or if they had uh, uh, early, if they were um, born, too early, um, they also could develop some uh, tra trauma from the traumatic birth, or if they had to have sur surgery as an infant, sometimes those can add in too. And then parents are wondering what's wrong with my kid because of those, those early ages where they didn't feel safe because they had to get pain or have some suffering when they needed someone to protect them. Well, yeah, and that's a good that's a good point because those are things. It's not under it's not all under the parents' control. What the what the trauma might be for some of these situations, uh, the trauma could be something that you know the parent can be you know do a perfect job, which we never do a perfect job as parents anyway. And and you you know th there's no there's no hope, so don't worry about it. You just got to do what you can. And you, but you're, you could do a, a, a perfect job. And some of the trauma that the kid may experience is going to be beyond your control. And that's, that's okay. And this can, what the idea here is we can work on being a secure base and safe haven for them and do the best we can to develop a secure attachment style. And also, even with your inner relationships with people as adults, you can do that as well. But yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm glad you brought that up because that, that's a good add-on to that. And I think it helps us understand. Now, don't get me wrong. I think sometimes parents do uh, a poor job of relating to their kids because they don't get any training as how to be parents. You guys, you guys know that really well because you deal with so many parents. So that's going to be, uh, that's gonna be uh, you know, something we need to understand, but deal with from the point of view of, uh, we can use this information to help them and both help the kid and help the parent as best we can. All right. So go out and use that. And I really appreciate you guys being here today. 
Um, and uh, we'll keep, you know, if you guys 